Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 30 The Girl I Left Behind Me We do not claim to rank among the military novelists. Our place is with the non-combatants. When the decks are cleared for action, we go below and wait meekly. We shall go no farther with the regiment than to the city gate, and leaving Major O'Dowd there, come back to the Major's wife. The Major and his lady, who had not been invited to the ball, had more time to rest. "'It's my belief, Peggy, dear,' said he, as he placidly pulled on his nightcap, "'that there will be such a ball danced in a day or two as some of them have never seen.' "'Call me at half-past one, Peggy, dear, and see me things is ready.' With which words the Major fell asleep. Mrs. O'Dowd, the good housewife, arrayed in curl-papers and a camisole, did not sleep. She packed his travelling bag ready for the march, brushed his cloak and other uniform, and set them out in order.' and stowed away in the cloak pockets a package of refreshments and a flask containing a pint of good cognac brandy. At half-past one, she woke up her major and had a comfortable cup of coffee prepared for him. And who will deny that this worthy lady's preparations showed just as much affection as the tears and hysterics of more sensitive females, and that drinking coffee together while the bugles were sounding and the drums beating was more useful than any outpouring of sentiment could be? In consequence, the Major appeared on parade quite trim, fresh and alert, his rosy face giving confidence to the troops. When the regiment marched by the balcony on which this brave woman stood to wave, the officers saluted her, and I dare say she would have liked to lead them personally into action. On Sundays, and at solemn times, Mrs. O'Dowd used to read with great gravity out of a large volume of her uncle the dean's sermons. She now opened this volume. Perhaps she did not understand much of what she was reading, but any effort to sleep was in vain. Thus, Jack or Donald marches away to glory, stepping out briskly to the tune of The Girl I Left Behind Me. It is she who remains and suffers and has leisure to brood and remember. Knowing how useless regrets are, Mrs. Rebecca wisely determined not to give way to sorrow and bore the parting from her husband with equanimity. Indeed, Captain Rawdon was much more affected than she was. She had mastered this rude, coarse nature, and he loved and worshipped her. In all his life, he had never been so happy as during the past few months. 
all former delights of turf, mess, hunting field, and gambling table. All previous loves and courtships were quite insipid when compared to the matrimonial pleasures he had lately enjoyed. She had known how to divert him, and he had found his house a thousand times more pleasant than any other place and he cursed his past extravagances and vast debts which must stand in the way of his wife's advancement. He had often groaned over these in midnight conversations with Rebecca, although as a bachelor they had never bothered him. Rebecca always knew how to conjure away these moods of melancholy. "'Why, my stupid love,' she would say, "'we have not done with your aunt yet.' "'Or when your Uncle Butte dies, I have another scheme. "'The living has always belonged to the younger brother, "'and why shouldn't you sell out and go into the church?' "'This idea,' said Rawdon, "'into roars of laughter, "'which General Tufto could hear on the first floor above him, "'and at breakfast Rebecca acted the scene "'and preached Rawdon's first sermon "'to the General's immense delight.' But these were bygone days. When the news arrived that the troops were to march, Becky rallied Rawdon about his gravity in a manner which rather hurt his feelings. It's, it's, not, it's not that I'm afraid, Becky, he said, with a tremor in his voice. But if I fall, I leave one and perhaps two behind me whom I should wish to provide for as I brought him into this scrape. Rebecca tried to soothe his wounded feelings. Oh, dearest love, do you suppose I feel nothing? Hastily dashing something from her eyes, she smiled up at her husband. Look here, said he. If I drop, let us see what there is for you. I've had a pretty good run of luck, and here's two hundred and thirty pounds. I've ten Napoleons in my pocket. Hmm. That is as much as I shall want, for the general pays everything, and if I'm hit, I cost nothing. Oh, don't cry, little woman. I may live to vex you yet. Well, I, I shan't take either of my horses, but shall ride the general's grey charger. Those two ought to fetch you something. Grig offered ninety for the mare yesterday, and like a fool I wouldn't sell. <laughs> and there's the little mare the general gave you. Rodden added, "'That dressing-case cost me two hundred. "'That is, I owe two hundred for it, "'and the gold tops must be worth forty. "'My pins and rings and watch cost a precious lot of money. "'Miss Crawley paid a hundred for the ticker. "'Well, we must make the best of what we've got, Becky, you know.' "'And so Captain Crawley, who had seldom thought about anything but himself "'until love had mastered him, went through his effects.' "'striving to see how they might be turned into money for his wife "'if any accident should befall him. "'He wrote them down in his big schoolboy handwriting. "'My double barrel by Manton, forty guineas. "'My driving cloak lined with sable fur, fifty pounds. "'My dueling pistols in rosewood case. "'Same which I shot Captain Marker, twenty pounds. Pounds, and so forth. Faithful to his plan, the captain dressed in his oldest uniform, leaving the newest behind. 
and this famous dandy went off on his campaign with a kit as modest as a sergeant's, and with something like a prayer on his lips for the woman he was leaving. He took her up and held her in his arms for a minute, tight-pressed against his strong, beating heart. His eyes were dim as he put her down and left her. He rode by his general's side and was silent for some miles. And Rebecca wisely determined not to give way to sentimentality on her husband's departure. She waved to him from the windows and stood for a moment looking out after he was gone. The cathedral towers were just beginning to blush in the sunrise. There had been no rest for her that night. She was still in her pretty ball dress, with dark circles round her eyes. Oh, what a fright I look, she said, examining herself in the glass. So she took off her pink dress, in doing which a note fell out from her corsage. She picked it up with a smile and locked it into her dressing box. Then she went to bed and slept very comfortably. The town was quiet when she woke up at ten o'clock. She resumed Rawdon's calculations of the night before, should the worst happen. She was pretty well to do. There were her own trinkets as well as her husband's things. Rawdon had been generous to her, and the general, her slave and worshipper, had made her many handsome presents of cashmere shawls and jewellery. As for tickers, as poor Rawdon called watches, her apartments were alive with their clicking. For when she happened to mention one night that hers was not working, next morning there came to her a little watch charmingly set with turquoises and another covered with pearls. General Tufto had bought one, and Captain Osborne had gallantly presented the other. So... Mrs. Rebecca found she might reckon on six or seven hundred pounds at the very least, and she passed an agreeable morning ordering and locking up her property. In Rawdon's pocketbook was a draft for twenty pounds on Osborne's banker. This made her think about Mrs. Osborne. I will go and get this cashed, she said, and pay a visit afterwards to poor little Emmy. If this is a novel without a hero, at least let us lay claim to a heroine. No man in the British army, not the great duke himself, could be more cool or collected in the presence of doubts and difficulties than this indomitable little woman. And there was another non-combatant whose emotions we have a right to know. This was our friend, the ex-collector of Bogley Walla who was woken by the sounding of the bugles in the early morning, and by Captain Dobbin, who insisted on shaking hands with him before his departure. Oh, very kind of you, said Joss, yawning and wishing the captain at the deuce. I, I didn't like to go off without saying goodbye, Dobbin said, in an incoherent manner. "'Because, you know, some of us mayn't come back again, and oh, that sort of thing, you know. Oh, "'What do you mean?' <laughs> Joss asked, rubbing his eyes. "'The captain did not hear him, for he was looking in the direction of George's apartments, "'biting his nails and showing signs of great inward emotion. 
Joss had always had rather a mean opinion of the captain, and now began to think his courage was failing. "'What can I do for you, Dobbin?' he said in a sarcastic tone. "'We... we march in a quarter of an hour,' the captain replied. "'And neither George nor I may ever come back. "'Mind, do not stir from this town until you see how things go. "'Stay here and make sure no harm comes to your sister. "'If anything happens to George, remember she has no one but you in the world to look to. "'If it goes wrong with the army, see her safe back to England.' "'and promise me that you will never desert her. "'I know you won't. "'Have you enough gold to return to England in case of a misfortune?' "'Oh, sir,' said Joss majestically, "'when I want money, I know where to ask for it. "'And as for my sister, you needn't tell me how I ought to behave to her.' "'You speak like a man of spirit, Joss,' the other answered good-naturedly. "'and I am glad that George can leave her in such good hands. "'So I may give him your word that you will stand by her?' "'Of course, well, of course,' answered Mr. Joss. "'And you'll see her safe out of Brussels in the event of a defeat?' "'A defeat? Oh, damn it, sir! It's impossible! Don't try, don't try and frighten me!' the hero cried. "'Dobbin's mind was thus set at ease.' But if he expected to get any personal comfort from having one more view of Amelia before marching away, his selfishness was punished. Opposite Joss's door was that of Amelia's chamber. The bugles had wakened everybody. Osborne was coming in and out of the bedroom with articles for packing. And then Dobbin caught a sight of Amelia's face once more. But what a face! So white, so wild and despair-stricken that the remembrance of it haunted him afterwards like a crime, and the sight smote him with inexpressible pity. She was wrapped in a white morning dress, her hair falling on her shoulders and her large eyes fixed and without light. The poor soul had taken up a sash of George's, and followed him to and fro with it in her hand, looking on mutely as his packing proceeded. She leant on the wall, holding this sash against her bosom, from which the heavy net of crimson dropped like blood. Our gentle-hearted captain felt a guilty shock as he looked at her. Good God, thought he. "'And is it this grief I dare to pry into?' "'And there was no way to soothe her helpless misery. "'He stood for a moment and looked at her, "'powerless and torn with pity, "'as a parent regards an infant in pain. "'At last George took Emmy's hand "'and led her back into the bedroom. "'They parted in that moment, and he was gone. Thank heaven that is over, George thought, bounding down the stairs, his sword under his arm as he ran swiftly to where the regiment was mustering. His pulse was throbbing and his cheeks flushed. The great game of war was going to be played. What a fierce excitement of doubt, hope, and pleasure. What were all the games of chance he had ever played compared to this? 
The young man had flung himself into all athletic contests from his boyhood. From the boys' cricket match to the garrison races, he had won a hundred triumphs. Strength and courage have always been the theme of bards. And from the story of Troy down to today, poetry had chosen a soldier for a hero. I wonder, is it because men are cowards in heart that they admire bravery so much? and place military valor so far beyond every other quality. So, at the sound of that stirring call to battle, George jumped away from his wife's gentle arms with a feeling of shame that he had stayed there so long. The same eagerness and excitement was felt by his friends, from the stout major to the little ensign stubble. The sun was just rising as the march began. It was a gallant sight. The band led the column. Then came the major in command, riding upon Pyramus. Then marched the grenadiers, their captain at their head. In the center were the colors, borne by Stubble and the senior ensigns. Then George came marching at the head of his company. He looked up and smiled at Amelia, and passed on. And the sound of the music died away. Chapter 31 In which Joss Sedley takes care of his sister. Thus, Joss Sedley was left in command of the little colony at Brussels, with Amelia, his Belgian servant Isidore, and the maid of all work as a garrison under him. Despite the morning's events, Joss remained for many hours in bed. The sun was high before he appeared in his flowered dressing gown at breakfast. Joss was very easy in mind about Osborne's absence. Osborne had openly shown his contempt for him, but Emmy had always been good to him. It was she who ministered to Joss's comforts, who walked or rode with him, as she had too many opportunities of doing, for where was George, and who interposed her sweet face between his anger and her husband's scorn. She had timidly remonstrated to George on her brother's behalf, but George had said, "'I'm an honest man, my dear, so how can I behave respectfully to such a fool as your brother?' So Joss was pleased George was gone. "'It won't be troubling me this morning,' he thought, "'with his dandified airs and his impudence. "'Put the captain's hat away,' he said to Isidore, the servant. "'Perhaps he won't want it again,' replied Isidore. "'He too hated George, who had treated him with insolence. "'Ask if Madam is coming to breakfast,' Mr. Sedley said. Alas, Madame could not come to breakfast. She was too ill, and in a frightful state, so her maid said. Jos showed his sympathy by pouring Amelia a large cup of tea and sending her breakfast in. Isidore had looked on sulkily while Osborne's servant was packing his master's baggage the previous night. He was angry that so many valuables should be removed from under his hands to fall into other people's possession when the English should be defeated. Of this defeat, he and many others in Brussels had no doubt. 
They believed that the emperor would annihilate the Prussian and English armies and march into Brussels within three days. His present masters would be killed or would fly, and their possessions would lawfully become the property of Monsieur Isidore. As he helped Jaws through his complicated daily toilette, this faithful servant calculated what he should do with the belongings around him. He would give the silver perfume bottles to a young lady of whom he was fond, and keep the cutlery and the large ruby pin for himself. It would look very smart upon one of the fine frilled shirts, which, along with the gold lace cap and the frock coat, the captain's gold-headed cane, and the great double ring with the rubies, would make him a perfect Adonis. Oh, how those sleeve buttons will suit me, thought he, as he fixed a pair on Mr. Sedley's podgy wrists and the captain's boots with brass spurs. Corbleu, what an effect they will have! So, while Monsieur Isidore was shaving Joss, his imagination was rambling along the green avenue, dressed in a frock coat and lace. Luckily, Mr. Joseph Sedley knew nothing of what was passing in his domestic's mind. If we knew what our servants thought of us, it would be unbearable. Amelia's attendant was less selfish. Few people could come near Amelia without feeling loyalty and affection. When Pauline, the cook and maid, found her silent and haggard by the window, the honest girl took her hand and said, "'See, madam, is my man not also in the army?' Then she burst into tears, and Amelia, falling into her arms, did likewise, and so each soothed the other. That morning, Isidore went into the town, to the hotels and lodging houses around the park, and there mingled with the other servants, gathering news to bring back to his master. Almost all these servants supported the emperor, and agreed with him that the English would find their graves in France. These opinions were brought back to Mr. Sedley. He was told that the Duke of Wellington had gone to try and rally his army, whose advance had been utterly crushed the night before. Crushed, sure, said Joss, whose heart was pretty stout at breakfast time. The Duke has gone to beat the Emperor, as he has beaten all his generals. His papers are burned, his things are removed, and his quarters are being got ready for the Duke of Dalmatia, Isidore replied. I had it from his own maitre d'hôtel. Milord Duke de Richemont's people are packing up everything. His grace has fled already, and the Duchess is only waiting to see the plate pack to join the King of France at Ostend. The King of France is that Ghent fellow replied Joss, pretending incredulity. Oh, he fled last night to Bruges, and embarks today from Ostend. The Duke de Berry is taken prisoner. Those who wish to be safe had better go soon, for the dikes will be opened tomorrow, and who can fly when the whole country is under water? <laughs> Nonsense, sir. We are three to one against Boney's force, Mr. Sedley objected. "'And the Austrians and the Russians are on the march. "'He shall be crushed.' 
The Prussians were three to one at Jena, and he took their kingdom in a week. They were six to one at Montmirail, and he scattered them like sheep. No mercy will be shown to the English. Joss, if not seriously alarmed, was at least considerably disturbed. Oh, give me my coat, sir, said he, and follow me. I will go myself and learn the truth of these reports. Isidore was furious as Joss put on the braided frock. Milor had better not wear that military coat, said he. The Frenchmen have sworn not to show any mercy to a single British soldier. Oh, silence, sirrah, said Joss resolutely, just as Mrs. Rawdon Crawley entered without ringing. She had come to visit Amelia. Rebecca was dressed very neatly, as usual, and her pink smiling cheeks were pleasant to look at on a day when everybody else's face wore anxiety and gloom. She laughed at Joss's struggles to thrust himself into the coat. "'Are you preparing to join the army, Mr. Joseph?' she said. "'Is there to be nobody left in Brussels to protect us poor women?' Joss succeeded in plunging into the coat and stuttered excuses to his fair visitor. How was she after the events of the morning? Monsieur Isidore disappeared. How good of you to ask, said she, pressing one of his hands in her own. How cool and collected you look when everybody else is frightened. How is dear little Emmy? It must have been an awful parting. Oh, tremendous, Joss said. You men can bear anything, she replied. Danger is nothing to you. Admit that you were going to join the army and leave us to our fate. I know you were. I was so frightened when I thought of it. For I do sometimes think of you when I am alone, Mr. Joseph, that I ran here immediately to beg you not to fly from us. This speech meant... My dear sir, should a retreat be necessary, you have a very comfortable carriage in which I propose to take a seat. I don't know whether Joss understood this, but he was deeply mortified by her having ignored him at Brussels. He had scarcely ever been invited to Rebecca's parties. Ah, he thought, now that she wants me, she comes to me. When there is nobody else in the way, she can think about Joseph sadly. But he also felt flattered at Rebecca's talk of his courage. Blushing, he put on an air of importance. I should like to see the action, he said. Every man of spirit would, you know. I've seen a little service in India, but nothing on this grand scale. You men would sacrifice anything for a pleasure, Rebecca answered. Captain Crawley left me this morning as gay as if he were going to a hunting party. What do any of you care for the agonies of a poor forsaken woman? Oh, dear Mr. Sedley, I have come to you for comfort. I have been praying all morning. I tremble at the frightful danger in which our brave troops are rushing. And I come here for shelter and find my last remaining friends bent upon plunging into the dreadful scene. <laughs> my dear madam, 
Joss replied, now quite soothed. Oh, don't be alarmed. I only said I should like to go, but my duty keeps me here. I can't leave poor Amelia. Oh, good noble brother, Rebecca said, putting her handkerchief to her eyes. You have got a heart. I thought you had not. <laughs> Upon my honor, Josh said. You do me injustice, my dear Mrs. Crawley. Your heart is true to your sister. But I remember two years ago when it was false to me, Rebecca said, turning away to the window. Josh blushed violently. His heart began to thump. He recalled the days when he had fled from her and the passion which had once inflamed him. I know you think me ungrateful, Rebecca continued in a low, tremulous voice. Your coldness, your averted looks proved it to me. But there were reasons why I should avoid you. Do you think my husband was inclined to welcome you? The only unkind words I have ever had from him have been about you, and most cruel words they were. <laughs> well, good gracious, but uh, I have done nothing, <laughs> said Joss in a flurry of pleasure and perplexity. Is jealousy nothing, said Rebecca. He makes me miserable about you, and whatever it might have been once, my heart is all his. I am innocent now, am I not, Mr. Sedley? Joss's blood tingled with delight. One or two knowing tender glances of her eyes, and his heart was inflamed again, and his doubts forgotten. Have not wiser men been fooled by women? If the worst comes to the worst, Becky thought, I have a seat in his barouche. There is no knowing what declarations of love Mr. Joseph might have begun if Isidore the valet had not reappeared. Joss almost choked with the emotion that he had to restrain. Rebecca thought that it was time for her to comfort her dearest Amelia. Au revoir, she said, kissing her hand to Joss, and tapped gently at Amelia's door. As she entered and closed the door on herself, he sank down in a chair and sighed. That coat is very tight for Milor. Isidore said, but his master heard him not. His thoughts were glowing in contemplation of the enchanting Rebecca, then shrinking guiltily before the vision of the jealous Rawdon Crawley with his fierce mustachios and his terrible dueling pistols. Rebecca's appearance struck Amelia with terror. It recalled her to the memory of yesterday. In her fears, she had forgotten Rebecca and her jealousy. How long had that poor girl been on her knees? What hours of speechless prayer had she passed? After the first terror in Amelia's mind, when Rebecca came rustling in her silks and brilliant ornaments to embrace her, a feeling of anger followed and from being deadly pale, she flushed red and returned Rebecca's look with a steadiness which surprised and somewhat abashed her rival. Dearest Amelia, you are very unwell, the visitor said, putting forth her hand. What is it? 
Amelia drew back her hand and trembled all over. Why are you here, Rebecca? she said. Her solemn glances troubled her visitor. She must have seen him give me the letter at the ball, Rebecca thought. Don't be agitated, dear Amelia, she said. I came only to see if you were well. Are you well? I dare say you are. You don't love your husband. You would not be here if you did. Tell me, Rebecca, did I ever do you anything but kindness? Oh, indeed, Amelia, no, when you were poor. Who befriended you? Was I not a sister to you? You saw us all in happier days before he married me. I was all in all then to him. Or would he have given up his fortune and his family as he nobly did to make me happy? Why did you come between my love and me? Why did you take my darling's heart from me, my own husband? Do you think you could love him as I did? His love was everything to me. You knew it and wanted to rob me of it. For shame, Rebecca, false friend and false wife. Amelia, I protest before God. I have done my husband no wrong, Rebecca said. Have you done me no wrong, Rebecca? You did not succeed, but you tried. She knows nothing, Rebecca thought. He came back to me said Amelia. I knew he would. I knew that no flattery could keep him from me long. I knew he would come. I prayed that he should. The poor girl spoke with a spirit which Rebecca had never before seen in her. But what have I done to you, Amelia continued, that you should try and take him from me? I had him for only six weeks. From the very first day of our marriage, you blighted it. Now he is gone. Are you come to see how unhappy I am? You might have spared me today. I, I never came here, interposed Rebecca. No, no, you didn't come. You took him away. Are you come to fetch him from me? She continued in a wilder tone. He was here. But he is gone now. There on that very sofa he sat. Don't touch it. I was on his knee. And my arms were round his neck. And we prayed. Yes, he was here. And they took him away. But he promised to come back. He will come back, my dear, said Rebecca, touched in spite of herself. Look, said Amelia. This is his sash. Isn't it a pretty colour? And she took up the fringe and kissed it. She had tied it round her waist earlier. She had forgotten her anger, her jealousy, the very presence of her rival, seemingly. For she walked silently and almost smiling towards the bed and began to smooth down George's pillow. Rebecca, too, walked silently away. How is Amelia? asked Joss. There should be somebody with her, said Rebecca. I think she is very unwell. She went away gravely, refusing Mr. Sedley's entreaties to stay to dinner. 
Rebecca was of a good-natured and obliging disposition, and she liked Amelia rather than otherwise. Meeting Mrs. O'Dowd in the park, Rebecca accosted her to her surprise, and telling her that poor little Mrs. Osborne was almost mad with grief, she sent off the Irishwoman to see if she could console her. Becky watched her go with a smile. "'I'm glad to see you so cheerful,' thought Peggy. "'It's not you that will cry your eyes out.' And with this, she hastened to Mrs. Osborne's lodgings, where she found Amelia almost crazy with grief. "'You must bear up, Amelia, dear,' the Major's wife said kindly, "'for he mustn't find you ill when he sends for you after the victory. "'You're not the only woman in the hands of God this day.' I know that. I am very wicked, very weak, Amelia said. However, she was the better for this company. Their hearts were with the column as it marched farther and farther away. Dreadful anguish, fears and griefs unspeakable followed the regiment. War taxes both alike and takes the blood of the men and the tears of the women. At half-past two, the dinner hour arrived. Warriors may fight and perish, but Joss must dine. He came into Amelia's room to coax her to eat. The soup is very good. Oh, don't try, Emmy, he said, and kissed her hand. Except at her wedding, he had not done that for years. You are very kind, Joseph, she said. But if you please... I will stay in my room today. However, Mrs. O'Dowd thought she would keep Mr. Joss company, so the two sat down to their meal. Joss's spirits rose with his food. We'll drink to O'Dowd and the brave soldiers, said he, bowing gallantly. Fill Mrs. O'Dowd's glass, Isidore. But Isidore started, and the Major's wife laid down her knife and fork. The windows were open, and a dull, distant sound came from the south. "'What is it?' said Joss. "'Why don't you pour, you rascal?' "'Selifu,' said Isidore, running to the balcony. Oh, "'God defend us! It's cannon!' Mrs. O'Dowd cried, following him to the window. A thousand anxious faces might have been seen looking from other casements. And presently... It seemed as if the whole population of the city rushed into the streets. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air.
and The Garden Show.